0: Please remain standing as we pray together. Lord Jesus, come now and fulfill the purpose that you have given in this this word that you've given us this morning, Lord. The word that you called uh, me to share with your body here beginning last week. And Lord, coming to fulfillment in this message, I pray in Jesus' name that you would stir up in all of us a passion and desire, a great love and affection for you above all things. And, Lord, I pray that you would begin doing that even now in the midst of this message, Lord. I pray that you would grant me exactly the right words to say and the right, exactly the right way to say them to convey the good news. And I pray that you would give us all, uh, preacher and congregation alike, ears to hear and hearts ready to receive. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. For some reason, 9 o'clock feels a lot like 8 o'clock today. (laughs) I don't know what's going on with that. It's a good thing we didn't have anything to do this weekend. I know, seriously. If you were here last week, you know that we departed from the assigned lectionary readings, those texts that are given uh, for reading in the church throughout a three-year period. And they're really good most of the time for us to follow along. And we hear the whole counsel of God's Word. But occasionally this happens. God will lead us somewhere else. And I believed that God had been prompting me with an increasing intensity to address a blind spot in our discipleship. Remember that we said that most of us believe that following Jesus is grounded in right intellect, is grounded and rooted in the intellect, knowing the right God stuff and thinking the right God thoughts. And that if we know and if we reason correctly, if we know and we reason well, then it is obvious that we will follow Christ well, except that is demonstrably false. That is not the way it works following Christ is actually instead a function of not having right thoughts, but having right loves, affections, and desires. The intellect serves that, but the root is our love, our affection, and our desire. A a disciple loves and desires God above everything else. And we hear that emphasis in the gospel text today. We hear it and in that pithy little expression from Jesus, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what do we treasure? Where is our heart? So discipleship is rooted in the affections. And the measure of how genuine that love and desire in our hearts is for God, that me, whether we genuinely love and desire God, is measurable by our obedience to Jesus Christ. Now, I didn't come up with that. It's what the Scripture says, in fact, it's what Jesus said, and we heard that last week in John 14. If you love me, Jesus said, you will keep my commandments. Love means I will keep his commandments. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word again. And whoever does not love me does not keep my words. So Jesus says that our, uh, that, that our godly living that obedience to Jesus Christ flows out of our love for Christ. And thus we concluded that protestations that we love Christ are empty self-serving lip service if we are actually disobeying Christ or planning to disobey Christ. It's just empty lip service and when we say we love Christ and yet live in disobedience. And so sin is a failure not of right thinking, sin is a failure of our love. We don't love what we should love. And I left us there. We, 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 we kind of we, we settled. We got a, a, a few things wrapped up last week. And I, by God's grace, it was uh, edifying for the church, but it does beg this question, okay? Here it is, and I told us we were going to talk about th- this week. How am I supposed to get and acquire that love and desire for God? How is that supposed to happen? If it's about right love and right affection, how am I going to do that? I know that I'm supposed to have it, But right now, at most, it seems all I can do is just to desire to desire God. If I have to grip my teeth and strain, if I have to just try harder, if I just have to get just a bigger hammer, do it into my own strength, I'm already not doing that well, and that means I'll just be defeated even more. So how is this supposed to happen? Well, interestingly enough, providentially enough, the opening prayer that Father Keith offered this Sunday morning... and and it was a sign, this was a sign for this day in the church year, actually gives us a biblical answer, the the clue to the biblical answer to the problem of how we are to come to love and desire God above all things. So the collect, collect is that short little prayer we pray at the beginning, you know, Lord be with you and with your spirit. Let us pray. And then there's the collect. The collect for today is based on the biblical doctrines of grace. This is critical. You need to hear this. In many conversations I have with folks, when the topic of grace comes up, they have the misconception that, God, that grace is God giving me a divine mulligan. Now, now, does anybody... I, I don't play golf, but even I know what a mulligan is. A mulligan is basically, you messed that shot up, here's a do-over, we're not even going to count it. So, messed your life up? No bad, here's a do-over, no consequences. But nowhere in Scripture do we see that version, really, a perversion of grace. That divine mulligan concept is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. Familiar quote to many of us. Bonhoeffer said that cheap grace is the grace that we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism... "...without church discipline, communion without confession, cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate, costly grace is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble, it is the call of of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets, and follows him. So that's costly grace, or I would call it genuine grace. And genuine grace, as we're addressing it right now, has two components. And so, and by, by the way, there will be a, a, you know, some of us never write anything down in the sermon. That's okay. I'm, I am a um, pathological note taker. I don't feel like I've actually done the right thing or participated unless I've taken notes. And so, and, and even though like when Father Keith is preaching, somebody else is preaching, I'll take notes in the first service. And then I'll take notes again in the second service, you know. Uh, And it really doesn't actually count unless I have my special note-taking fountain pen. But that's another, that's a whole other thing. But if you have a special note-taking fountain pen at the end of the sermon, I'm going to give you some things I really do want you to write down. But until we get there, there's two points of this grace this stuff that we need to recognize here. First of all, what is grace? There's two components. First of all, grace is God's unconditional, unmerited, unearned love and favor directed towards rebellious, condemned sinners like me and like you. And then the second component is that effective grace in our lives, listen, is the Holy Spirit actively and energetically transforming our desires and our wills. It is God's power changing what we want in order to mirror the things that He wants for us. And we see that this it is exactly what the Scripture teaches, that God's grace works in us to give us the desire and then the power to do what pleases Him. So listen to that again. God's grace works in us to give us the desire and the power to do what pleases Him. And this, listen to uh, Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. We hear it explicit in this passage. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now listen to what Paul says to the Philippian church. For it is God who works in you. Who's doing the work? God. It is God who works in you both to will. (laughs) Yes, there are two syllables evidently in the word will. Will. (laughs) both to will and to work His good pleasure. So it is God. This is grace. God is at work. God, who's doing it? God is at work in my life causing me to will, in other words, to desire, to have an affection for the things that, that please Him, and to do, to give me the, the power to do it. He gives me the desire to do it, and He gives me the power to do it. That's grace. That's genuine grace. Genuine grace is not a divine mulligan. Don't worry about it. Keep living like you're living. That's not grace. If we, say that, if we maintain that grace is God saying, just go ahead and sin, and I'll give you a pass, then listen to this. We have a made-up God. We have made up a God in our head that is too weak to change sinners and whose character is just as sinful and unholy as me. And that's not God at all. Now listen again to what we prayed for at the beginning of this service. Almighty God, you alone can bring into order the unruly wills and affections, desires and affections of sinners. Who can do this? Can I do it? Am I going to bootstrap myself to do this? No. We started this service saying, saying this. God, if you don't do it, we ain't going to get it done. You alone can bring into order the unruly wills and affections of sinners. This is straight from the, uh, straight from the Philippians 2 passage I just read. God alone can change desires and affections. And that's what we are praying. And then we prayed this. Grant your people grace to love what you command. So what, are we, what is grace in this passage? Is, when we're praying for grace, are we saying, God, don't change us. Don't do anything to us. Just give us a do-over. Give us a mulligan, and we'll be happy with that. No, that is not what we're praying for because that's not what the Scripture teaches. Grant your people grace to love what you command. So God, give me a a love for your commandments. You see, right now in my sinful state, I don't love the things that God commands. And I need something to change that, and God alone can do it. So love what you command and to desire what you promise. I love that phrase, desire what you promise God. In other words... He's, I want you, dear God, give me, you have given me many great and wonderful promises, many of which I'm not really tickled about. <laughs> They're not things I really want to do. You know what, But now I want you to give me the desire for the things that you have promised. So we are praying that God, through his power, that he would change my want-to's, so that, you know, what you want to do, your want-to's, and love is always the fountainhead of genuine obedience to God that flows out of that change. For this is the love... This is 1 John chapter 5, verse 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And listen to what it says. And His commandments are not burdensome. Why? Because we love what He commands and we will desire what He promises. We are asking for God's supernatural work in our lives to create a love and desire for the things of God. Oh, if there was only something we could do to open ourselves to that kind of grace. If there were only something we could do so that we could cultivate that work in our lives. Well, good news, there is. There is. Let me give you an analogy here. Um, And I want you to think about this. I think that grace is a lot like sleep. Sometimes sleep is irresistible. It, it, you think about it. It's like when you, are, you don't want to fall asleep, you would prefer not to fall asleep, you're actually resisting sleep. You don't want it to happen to you. It would be embarrassing if it did happen to you, like when you're in class or listening to this sermon. <laughs> You don't want to fall asleep. And yet, sometimes, even though you resist it, it comes to you when you don't want it. It's like when your toddler is at home at church, after church, on, at lunch, and they're in their high chair, and they're eating their lunch, and you've seen this movement here. The bobblehead toddler. And, all the, and you, they're, 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 they'll, they'll go down, and then they'll go like this, you know, like little drunks. <laughs> and, and the next thing you know... They face plant in the SpaghettiOs. Now, they didn't want to do that, but it was irresistible. Grace can be like that in the life of a believer. It can be irresistible. God's grace working in us to change. We're not even wanting it, even maybe resisting it. But many times, grace is like sleep in another way. Now, first of all, do you ever really decide to go to sleep? No, you don't. You don't say, I'm going to sleep now. Now, my wife might take exception to this because she seems to be able to. But naturally speaking, you do not decide to go to sleep. You decide you want to go to sleep. You kind of put your, So you, you can't just throw a switch and go to sleep. There's not a sleep switch. If there was, they wouldn't be selling all these sleep aids, right? And so we would all be able to just turn ourselves off and turn ourselves back on. But you can't decide to go to sleep. Here's what you can do, though. All you can do naturally is to create, a, a, put yourself in a posture that welcomes sleep. Ready? You put yourself in a posture, in a position that welcomes sleep. So if you want to go to sleep, what you will do many times is you'll go and you'll get in your bed and you'll get comfortable and you'll get in the position that you like to sleep in. And you will slow your breathing you breathe steadily and you'll try, to, you'll try to block out intrusive thoughts that make you want to think about what you got to do next week or whatever. And then what you've done, and if somebody were to look at you, in many ways, you actually look as if you are asleep. You've adopted a posture that welcomes sleep. And then, without you deciding it, sleep may come. I want to suggest to you that that's the way God's grace often works in our life. When we call those postures the means of grace. So here's what happens is that I can't make God's grace happen in my life. Then it's not God's grace. It would be something I would be doing. I can desire God's grace to be active in my life. And then I can adopt postures and practices that welcome God's grace into my life. And he is the one that ultimately acts. Do you see what I'm saying? Let me tell you a story, personal story that kind of illustrates this. Uh, January of nineteen eighty-five, on a snowy, cold. It was like minus three. I think it was really, really cold in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. January day in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Uh, my oldest daughter, Rebecca, was born, and it was a beautiful, beautiful thing. And I remember, I, I, nobody ever told me that I would feel the way I felt when they put that little baby in my arms. And I am a dad, you know. I am not mom, and I was just, um, I was it just. It just devastated me. I was just there was I was ruined right then at that moment, you know. Uh, at that point, I didn't I didn't care about anything else. I just loved this little girl so much. But also, uh, you know, at that time in my life, I was what was picturesquely referred to as a backslidden Christian. All right, um, I didn't love God. I didn't desire the things of God. I had no desire to obey God. From all intents and purposes, what it looked like from the outside, I was not a believer. Uh, I had a strong conversion experience earlier in my, my life when I was a teenager, but I went to Carolina and with all the other Christians backslid. So, uh, so anyway, so anyway, 1985, summer of 1985, uh, we moved to Burlington, North Carolina. I take my first job out of college and uh, it is a uh, district scout executive, Boy Scouts of America for Alamance County. And I'm a horrible person basically and so but i we have this brand new baby girl though and I'm and I'm holding this child and I come to myself as it says in Luke chapter 15 you know and he came to himself and and I said this I said this amazing little girl does not deserve the man I am to be her father this child deserves the best daddy in the world now I didn't know a lot but I figured okay, a good dad would probably pray every day. <laughs> and a good dad would probably read his Bible every day. And a good dad would probably go to church, take his family to church every Sunday. And so I determined that that's what I would do. And I figured I was probably going to hell at this point in my life. And I, I prayed and I, I remember my prayer. And it was, it was a defiant prayer. It was a prayer. It went like this. It literally went like this. Lord God, I know I'm probably going to hell. But since I'm going there, let me tell you how I'm going to get there. I'm going to pray every day. I'm going to read my Bible every day. And I'm going to take my church to my family to church every Sunday. And that's how I'm going to go to hell. He'd seem to take that as a challenge. <laughs> So, early in the week, Lisa and the baby asleep, and I quietly, furtively slip out of bed and go into the den and kneel by my grandmama's old green couch. I kneel down, and I begin to pray, and I read my Bible. And then I do this again. So I didn't tell Lisa. No need to disappoint her if I couldn't follow through with this. Uh, I didn't tell Lisa. And so, the next night, I slipped out of bed. Went into the den, knelt by the green couch, prayed and read my Bible. Third night, slipped out of bed, knelt by the green couch, prayed and read my Bible. We hadn't got around to Sunday yet. All of a sudden, and I wasn't feeling anything. I didn't expect to feel anything. I was going to hell. (laughs) So I didn't expect anything. But all of a sudden... uh, This happened. I can't explain it. The air above me was full of angels. You could hear the wings. And it was a fight. And the darkness that I had allowed into my life, they beat back and drove out. And the only way I can say what happened next is to say it like this. That God sovereignly elected to turn my lights back on. And in that moment... My love for God returned, my joy returned, the assurance of my salvation returned, my desire for the things of God returned, and He gave me new loves and new desires. And He led me to that passage in Second uh, Timothy chapter two, where let me just read that because it was so significant. I don't, I know I'd had to have read it before, but I don't ever remember reading it prior to that. This saying is trustworthy, for if we died with him, we also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. And this is where God spoke to me. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Here's the point. What happened to me? I had adopted the postures to welcome and receive God's grace by practicing the means of grace. I didn't know that's what I was doing, but I was practicing the means of grace. Prayer is perhaps the primary means of grace. Reading the Bible is a primary means of grace. Going to church is a means of grace. I didn't make God do anything. I just placed myself in a posture where I could welcome the grace that God sovereignly chose to extend to me. And when we do things like this as unto the Lord, we should not be surprised when God shows up and brings into order the unruly wills and affections of us sinners. Now, in one sense, I could end this sermon right there, but I would be leaving you without showing you where we locate a key passage that describes and enumerates the means of grace in the life of church. There are many means of grace, but we get the core package here in Acts chapter 2. We read that this morning. And I want to just briefly enumerate the trustworthy means of grace that God gives us in this passage. And these are the things, if you're writing something down this morning, I hope you'll write these down. Because you will find that God is always faithful to meet us here. The first things the scripture says in in Acts 2.42, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. To the apostles' teaching. In other words, they were doing exactly what we are doing right now. They were reading and studying the Scripture. They were listening to the apostles. We hear the apostles where, well, there's this part of the the Bible called the New Testament. (laughs) They had a lot to do with that. That's the teaching of the apostles. And of course, they taught from the Old Testament as well. So, the apostles' teaching. The second means of grace listed here is the fellowship. But it's not just like fellowship time. It's koinonia, which means life-on-life involvement with other believers, sharing life with other believers, and that's what we do in life groups. We do it in other ways as well. But we try to cultivate that at Christ Church through the life groups. It means being with people. Listen, if if you are with people who love God and live for Jesus, it will shape your desires and affections. You will want to love God more, and you will desire to live for Christ. Conversely, if we yoke ourselves with unbelievers, we will experience the opposite effect. Yoking ourselves, Scripture talks about 2 Corinthians chapter 6, be not unequally yoked with unbelievers. Connecting our lives at a deep level with people, sharing life on life at a deep level with unbelievers, you will desire the things that they desire, and you will have the affections for the things that they have affections for. The breaking of bread, the breaking of bread. This is Luke's favorite term for Holy Communion. All of God's story is told at the table, Then God and God shares His life with us in the breaking of bread. This is uh, everything that surrounds this table, the telling of that story. We'll get into this in a little bit more in just a second. The telling of that story and then actually eating this bread and drinking this wine, partaking of the body and blood of Christ, is a supercharged means of grace. The prayers a daily pattern of being with God in prayer. That's exactly what I was doing when I was kneeling beside the old green couch there in the den. I had determined I was going to adopt a daily pattern of prayer. The prayers. Uh, if you need help, we would published this little book back, first of all in uh, 1549. 1662 uh, is pretty good. 79 is not bad either. It's called the, the prayer book. And then They sold their possessions and gave to those who were in need, giving their proceeds away. Listen to this. Giving your stuff away, especially to the poor, is a means of grace. How could that be a means where I encounter Christ in a powerful way? I don't know. Maybe it has something to do with Matthew chapter 25. For when you've done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. In other words, when you're with them, you're with me. And where Jesus is, there's grace. Bible math. <laughs> and then uh, t- daily attending temple together. In other words, worship is a means of grace. These are ways, these are the sure means God uses to begin to change our affections and desires so that we love what he loves and desires, desire what he desires. And we neglect them, them at our peril. Let me close by giving you God's secret weapon... Sort of the, the uh, all of the above distilled down to their essence, secret weapon to reorient our desires and affections. It is so obvious that we often don't see it. And here it is. Listen to me. It is God's story. We are creatures who are made to drink in narratives and stories. Just think about what happened. I love to tell stories. I saw what happened to you when I told the story of the green couch, now my story of the green couch, when I told you that story, your affect changed. Your posture changed. Your eyes got larger. You were drinking in that story. And, it was, and when I thought about that story to tell to you, that's my story, it changed me again. I felt my affections being engaged as I was preparing this sermon. We are creatures made to drink in narratives and stories. That's why Jesus taught in parables. Parables are stories. The stories that you and I absorb will shape our loves and our desires. God's story is told how? Obviously, it's told in Scripture. If we open ourselves to stories that are from Scripture or that resonate with God's stories, then we will love God more. If we fill our hearts with stories that don't harmonize with God's truth, we will be drawn away from the love and knowledge of God. And those stories happen in a lot of of ways. Narrative comes in music. Narrative comes in the stories that our culture tells us. Uh, Nationalism, consumerism, egoism, privilege, those are stories. Then if we want to take God's story and really apply it, we embody that story by acting it out. Now, growing up as a little boy in Hamlet, North Carolina, uh, little boys in my neighborhood went to, we lived in the Sandhills, we went up to one of those big sand dunes there in in Hamlet, North Carolina, and we took our Tonka trucks. And we played trucks. And by the way, if you played trucks in, in Hamlet in the 1960s, you had to have a name. You didn't have your regular name. Of course, my name, my, my nickname, everybody knew it was Sandy, and that's not a truck driver name. It's just not. I'm sorry. Mom and Dad did not think about that. So we chose, and you and everybody chose a name, and it was somebody it was using some other name. It was a monosyllabic man name, Mac. There's a Mac truck. Obviously, Mac is a truck name. So you choose, you choose your name, and you play trucks. Now, most of us didn't grow up to drive earth-moving equipment, did we? But we did learn something about the roles of life and what to love. It shaped our—we were playing adulthood. Little girls in my neighborhood were not politically correct, and they played house. And, and it's okay, because most of them—listen, they didn't grow up to just play house. That's not what they did with their life. But they learned to love a certain thing, a certain set of desires— through that, and that did shape them. They played. Here's the point. Here's the point. That's what liturgy does. We play the kingdom every Sunday. I don't understand why we do all this. You know, we play every, every time we played trucks, it was basically the same playing trucks. We are acting out the story. It is playing the kingdom. We dress up like the kingdom. We sing the songs of the kingdom. Music, the narrative that comes to us through music, really goes directly to the heart. And then we actually act out the central kingdom story at this table. If you aren't hearing, reading, and soaking in the story and then acting it out every Sunday, you are not going to love and desire God. If you aren't in worship on Sunday somewhere you are by nef- by definition being formed by a different story that is forming different desires and affections. And that brings us to here's the secret weapon that's embedded right in the middle of what we do every year. It brings us to next Sunday which is the beginning of Holy Week. Palm Passion Sunday. And continuing through that week for eight days, we are going to tell the story and act it out over and over and over again. You don't love and desire God the way you think you should? Flee to the means of grace. Really need some extra strength means of grace? (laughs) Not just regular 350 milligram means of grace. Oh, no, no, no. Talk a 1,000 milligram means of grace. Start with Palm Sunday this coming week and come to every single service. Give yourself over to God's story. It will tire you out. But folks, when you played outside all day long as a child, you came home tired out and you slept really good. It will tire you out, but it will shape your loves. Act it out, live it out, and see what God will do. Maybe God will turn your lights back on. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.